What's up, Lions? For as little as $5 a month, you can help this show to grow while also getting access to our exclusive Pride content, which includes shows like Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, Special Interviews, Lions of Liberty Roundtables, and much, much more. So check that out. Help us grow at lionsofliberty.com forward slash support. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another episode of Felony Friday, a weekly show that we have here every single week on Lions of Liberty. Of course, on Felony Friday, we focus each week on exposing injustice in this country's broken criminal justice system. Now, we do have a unique format here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. We have three unique shows every single week, three times per week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Every Monday, we kick off the week with a show hosted by Mark Clare. It's our longest-running show. It is our flagship program, and Mark, on Mondays, interviews leaders in the Liberty Movement. And from time to time, about once a month, he will host a roundtable discussion known as Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor. It is, just as it sounds, it's a wild trip and a fun time. So check out both formats of Mark's show. Every Wednesday, we have Electric Liberty Land hosted by Brian McWilliams. And that is also, also has some different formats. So we have a variety show within a variety show, another one where Brian will cover current events. He'll bring on some guests, sometimes some guests in the comedy world, to get their thoughts on culture, comedy, and, of course, liberty. You can't have a show on this network without it being about liberty. Felony Friday has been around for 123 episodes. This being the 123rd episode, that means you'll be able to find the show notes page at lionsofliberty.com slash ff123. Today's episode, this is a great episode. If you're a new listener, we might have some new listeners checking this out. We have a big guest today. We're going to be talking about some uh, pretty uh, controversial stuff. Today's episode, I'll be talking with Juanita Broderick. Of course, Juanita says in 1978 that she was raped by Bill Clinton. I will introduce Juanita in just a moment. Before I do that, I want to let you guys know we did, and especially for our, well, it's actually for all listeners, new and old, we did just update our podcast platform. We were using Podbean before. We've switched to Libsyn. And with that, there's been some issues. So the last three episodes, there's a chance that even if you're subscribed, you didn't get it delivered to your phone. Check out the episode from two weeks ago of Felony Friday with Adam Kokesh, episode 121. You can find that at lionsofliberty.com slash FF121. And check out Mark's episode 345 with Anthony Samerhoff of the Scottish Liberty Podcast. That was a great episode. So you can find that at lionsofliberty.com slash 345. And also this Wednesday, so... Today's Friday, the previous Wednesday's episode of Electric Liberty Land, hosted by Brian McWilliams. We're still ironing out our feed with our switch to Lipson, so some people might not have gotten that, so you might have to seek it out yourself. Brian talked about the Iran deal. He talked about U.S. spending cuts, cutting support to the Syrian White Helmets, the U.N. support staff there. 
So check those out, guys. You can find that one at lionsofliberty.com slash ELL71. Let's get rolling with the show. My guest today on Felony Friday is Juanita Broderick. Juanita has accused Bill Clinton of raping her back in 1978. And you're probably familiar with Juanita's story, um, especially more recently, what has come out in the past few years, especially during the last presidential cycle, with what happened between Donald Trump and uh, Donald Trump being accused of some uh, promiscuous behavior. And then um, Donald Trump's uh, part of his response was bringing up some of his opponent, Hillary Clinton, her husband, Bill Clinton, bringing up some of his past, some of his uh, past accusations. Um, He'd been accused of raping um, a few women. I'm not quite sure of the number, but that really um, was never really accepted by the media. And uh, a lot of these women's stories had been shot down over the years. So Juanita has, has come forward. She's written a book about this. Her book is called, You Better Put Some Ice on That, How I Survived Being Raped by Bill Clinton. Juanita, welcome to Felony Friday. Oh, thank you so much for asking. Well, thanks for coming on the show. And, you know, like I said, you've been, I actually heard you on a uh, a friend of my podcast. Um, Dan Smots has the System is Down podcast. I'd heard of your story before. And to be quite honest, 100% transparent, I, you know, I didn't know the the details of it. I didn't know know, exactly what transpired. And hearing that story on Dan's podcast it, I mean, it, it shook me, honestly. It, it woke me up because my entire life, I'm 35 years old, uh, recording this on my 35th birthday, and my entire lo- life I've, you know, I've, I've always looked at Bill Clinton in the uh, sort of the light that, you know, this isn't a good guy. Uh, this is a guy that cheated on his wife, but I didn't look at him as a, as a rapist, as, a, as, as someone who was uh, really a monster. But after hearing uh, your story on Dan's podcast, that's exactly the way I came off feeling about him. And that's why I wanted to have you on my show, because your story needs to get out there. More people need to hear it. This is one of the the past presidents of the United States. And the vast majority of people living in the United States today still think he was a a good president, that he he didn't do, uh, they think he did a good job while he was president and they don't hold um, these things against him. People just kind of let them fade off into the background. So thank you so much for coming on the show. And I I wanted to to start off asking before we get into talking about, you know, the incident and and everything you've been through with this, this more recent media blitz that is sort of focused on you. Is this something that you that you ever expected yourself to be in this position? Uh, No, no. You know, after I came out, you know, completely in 1999 on the NBC Dateline uh, interview, I just sort of went back into the woodwork, you might say, and uh, just became completely unpolitical. I mean, I had nothing to do with anything that had to do with politics. And then uh, it was 2015, the end of 2015, when Hillary Clinton tweeted that all all victims of sexual abuse should come forward and be heard and be believed. And I think she said, we're with you. That I went ballistic over that, John. I I couldn't believe those words were coming out of her mouth. So I went through the next two years 
of fighting against her saying those words and supporting President Trump. But it wasn't until 2017, the end of 2017, when the mainstream media Mm -hmm. finally realized I was telling the truth. So let's let's go back to back when everything started. Before the incident occurred, um, how how did you were you volunteering for Bill Clinton's campaign yes. at the time? So, yes. so how did you uh, how did you get involved with with even volunteering? Well, I had never been involved in politics before, and one of my friends asked me to go to a, a Bill Clinton volunteers meeting. So I went with her. And I uh, thought, you know, this might be fun. I, I was a, I owned my own nursing home. I worked hard every day, but I thought this might be a good thing to get involved in. I was in the Chamber of Commerce and so many other, you know, civic activities. And I thought, well, this will be a good thing. So I volunteered and would go around in the evening and put up yard sounds, signs and hand out uh, campaign information. And it was fun. I took my little boy with me and we would put up signs and it was enjoyable. So you owned a a nursing home at the time and this uh, owning this nursing home, this led to your your first interaction with Bill Clinton, correct? Or maybe uh, didn't you? Right. I'll just let you explain it. So how how did you first meet Bill Clinton in person? How did that happen? I had been uh, working for about 30 days, give or take a day or two. And then the state office of his campaign headquarters called me and said, "Uh, Mr. Clinton's going to be in the area, and we know that you're a volunteer for him and that you have a nursing home. And we wondered if he could come by there, meet your residents, and maybe take you through a few photographs. So, gosh, we were so excited. We were just waiting for that day to come. And uh, he arrived with all of his entourage, and we were standing there, just all of us. We had our little Bill Clinton for Governor buttons on, and he walked around and introduced himself to many of the residents who had been up in the main lobby and the families. And um, uh, then after that, uh, the newspaper asked for a photo op. That's the photo that you see on the front of my book. And uh, after the photo op, he came over to me and was so congenial and so nice. You know, he was such a charismatic man. And he started to talk to me about the nursing home. Well, it just so happened at the time, nursing homes were struggling. And so I began to tell him that we were just not getting paid through the federal and state government. The reimbursement was so low. And he just seemed to catch right on to that. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm interested. Can you bring me some figures and, and uh, things? He says, are you ever in Little Rock? And I said, yes, I'll be there in about three weeks for our nursing home seminar. And he said, well, let's get together when you're there. Call my office uh, when you get there and let's get together and talk about this. So, I mean, I worked for two or three nights getting all these forms ready, but showing exactly what it took to take care of a patient and what the state was reimbursing us with federal funds, matching federal funds. And so uh, I was excited. Jump in real quick. So yeah. after, after that initial meeting, I mean, did you, what was your first impression of Bill Clinton? Did you, did you get, sense anything a little bit off or? No, nothing no. At all? no, nothing. He was just such a nice person. I mean, there wasn't anything. I was just so thrilled to be able to talk to 
more than likely the future governor of our state that could help my business. I was just really excited. And John, at that time, nothing had ever come out about him and his womanizing and his sexually assaulting of women. We knew nothing of that. It was, I mean, you're talking 1978. So, um, uh, do you want me to go ahead now and tell yeah, that? Yeah, please, yeah, please continue. Well, my nurse and I were so excited uh, when we got there and the next morning when we got up, uh, we called his campaign headquarters and a young lady answered the phone. And this has always seemed strange to me. I told her, I said, this is Mrs. Hickey. That was my name at the time. Mm-hmm. And I said, uh, Mr. Clinton asked me to call when I got in town. And she immediately said, oh, yes, Mrs. Hickey, let me give you a number to call. And I mean, she knew who I was and that I was going to be calling. And so I called the number and he answered the phone and I explained to him who I was. And he says, oh, yes, I remember. And uh, I said, we'll have an hour off for lunch. Can we come to your uh, campaign office and talk to you then about all these forms that I brought? And he said, you know, I'm not going to be there today. He said, why don't I just come to your hotel now? And I, I thought, man, that is great. I won't have to drive clear across on a short lunch break and see him. He's going to come here. And he said, I'll meet you down in the Camelot. It was the Camelot Hotel at that time. He says, I'll meet you down in the coffee shop. But he said, just wait till I get there and I'll call your room. And I said, okay. So I turned to Norma and I said, you go on and sign us in the meeting and uh, when I'm through in the coffee shop, I'll be right on to the meeting. So she goes on to the meeting, and I wait in the room for him to call. Got all my stuff ready to go down. So I don't know how long, how much time transpired before he called. And he called, and he said, you know, Juanita, it's so crowded down here, and there's even reporters down here. He said, can we just talk about this and have coffee in your room? And I'm sure I was apprehensive because I, I've never been in a hotel room alone with somebody that I really didn't know. I'd met him once, but this was the attorney general of the state of Arkansas. So I'm sure I didn't fear anything, but you're talking 40 years ago. I can't remember exactly how I felt, but I felt like I was safe. I understand in the context of, uh, this is 1978, you know, things have changed a lot until today, but back then, wouldn't you think that, you know, a married man, I mean, nothing to come out about Bill Clinton yet about his womanizing, but a married man alone in a hotel room with a woman that's not his wife. I mean, that, that's, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, it, it was, it was strange, but I had some important things I wanted to talk to him about. I, 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 guess, I guess my point is bringing it up. You would think he wouldn't want to put himself in that situation, right? I know, somebody... and running for governor? Right. He's the attorney general. I mean, he, he, he was so high in power in the state of Arkansas. And so I order coffee to the room, and I wait for him to come up. And the people leave with the coffee, and then I hear a knock on the door. John... I go to the door and I open it and there he stands with these dark sunglasses on. And I'll always remember that that felt so strange why he would be standing in a hallway with dark sunglasses on. 
And someone even said later, everywhere he went in Arkansas in those days, he had on those dark sunglasses. But anyway. He was probably high on cocaine. I know. You know, and I always wondered if that isn't what happened that morning. Uh, So I usher him in uh, over to the table by the window where I had all the, the coffee and all my papers and everything. And he goes over there and he takes his suit coat off and he lays it over the chair. And then he walks around the table uh, and looks down below and I'm pouring coffee. And uh, he says, come here. He says, let me show you this building down here. So I go around the table and stand over where he is. And he was pointing down and explaining about an old building. It was an old dilapidated building down below that uh, was an old 1800 jailhouse that was right on the river. And he said, I want to restore that when I become governor. And I thought, well, that's interesting. So I start back around to the other side of the table to get my information. And he grabs me. And at first I thought, you know, why is he grabbing me? And then he tries to kiss me. And then I start backing away from him and just have all these, I don't even remember what I told him, but it was no. I mean, I've said no. And then I go again to try to go back around the other side of the table. And that's when he grabs me again. And that's when I start yelling. And then he grabs me. He pushes me back on the bed. I mean, I'm falling backwards onto the bed. And then I start kicking and fighting and screaming And then all of a sudden, this huge man, I only weighed about 120 pounds at the time, and is on top of me. And every time I screamed, then he would start biting on my upper lip, scared me to death. And it's too difficult to go into that. Yeah, you don't don't have to go in. I don't want you to go into the details. I was horrified. I kept thinking, my God, I can't breathe. And here's this man on top of me ripping up my clothes and biting on my lip. And every time I would scream is when he would go to my lip again. And it was so painful. I mean, it's, I can remember back thinking, I'm going to die. You know, this, I'd never known anyone that had been raped. I'd never been alone with a man like this that had ever tried to do anything like this to me. And I was, I was devastated. Yeah. I I can't, can't even, can't even imagine. You know, and, and it was, it was, uh, it was like, my God, you know, after the rape was over and I'm, I'm gathering myself and getting up on the side of the bed and he doesn't say anything. He just walks over and puts on his suit coat and gathers himself. And then I'm, I mean, I am gut wrenching crying at that moment. I'm not yelling anymore. My mouth hurts. I hurt all over. And he looks at me and he says, don't worry. I'm sterile. I had mumps when I was a boy. And I just look at him and he looks back at me and, and with this look of frustration, like, why are you crying? It was, it was so cold. It was so calloused. 
And I, I didn't even say anything to him. And then he just calmly gets himself together, puts on his sunglasses, walks over to the door, and then turns and sort of motions to my mouth. And he says, you'd better put some ice on that and walks out the door. And I just sat there. I, I just, I still can't believe it happened. You know, I, I, I just, I could not believe it. Who was the first person you told about it? Okay. As soon as he got out the door, and I even remark about this in my book, I rush to the door and I lock it because I'm so afraid that somebody's going to come in to get rid of the body. I mean, I felt like this numb body. And so then I go back and lay down trying to realize I had just been raped. And I hadn't just been raped by anybody. I had just been raped by the attorney general of my state, the main policing person of my state. So I go back and lay down. And I, I don't know. I, of course, I didn't go to sleep. I just thought I, this, this just really didn't happen. Then all of a sudden, about 30 minutes, 45 minutes later, there's a knock on the door. And I go and I look through the little peephole and it's Norma. I, I had completely forgotten about the meeting. I had completely forgotten why I was even in Little Rock. Mm -hmm. And I opened the door and I see the look on her face when she sees me. And man, I just start crying all over again. And she comes in. I tell her what happened. She knew I was going to meet with him, but supposedly down in the coffee shop. And I tell her everything. And we both, and she's probably just as shocked as I am. And she, first thing she does is goes out in the hallway and gets ice from my mouth. Because by that time, my lip was bleeding. It was swollen approximately twice the size of a normal lip. It was huge. And she gets ice from my mouth. She comes back, sits down beside me on the bed, and she says, what do you want to do? And I said, I just want to go home. I, I, I just wanted to get as far away from that room in Little Rock, Arkansas as I could. So she helps me change clothes and she gets all of our stuff together and we leave and drive home. Yeah. I mean, people would say or criticize and say, well, why wouldn't you call the police at that point in time? Well, it's, he's the attorney general. So yeah, yeah he is the police. Exactly. So and another thing they don't understand, I went to see him because my nursing home was struggling, hoping to get help. Mm -hmm. As the attorney general, he regulated my nursing home. And even more so as the governor, when he became governor. I mean, I was already struggling and I could see him start sending in somebody to survey me on some regulation or the or another mm -hmm. every week. I, I mean and then you're talking 1978. I blame myself. I had allowed this monster to come to my room. I mean, I didn't know he was a monster, but I had allowed him. And you're talking 1960s and 1970s. If a woman allows a man to come to her room and anything happened, it's her fault. No doubt, her fault. Yeah, that's how it was back then. You gotta, you gotta remember that. Yeah. yeah. 
So how did you move forward from there? Oh, my God. When I got home, I probably was in shock for weeks. You know, I tried to go on. I tried to go on to work. I tried to do my job. And after that first day, then we told Norma's sister, Jean, she was also an RN that worked at my nursing home. Mm -hmm. And I told, at the time that this rape occurred, I was going through, I was separated, but living with my first husband. But I was also involved with another man who became my second husband. I divorced my first husband probably two months after the rape, you know, it was uh, because we were already in that process. Mm -hmm. And I did not tell him what happened because he would have blamed me too. There's no way I could have told him. But I did tell the man that I was having an affair with, David Broderick. Uh, we were very close at that time. And, um, it, it, and then there were several other people I told, Louise Ma, uh, Louise Perkins at the time was her name. And I told my roommate in nurses training, Kathleen Krigler. And then uh, Sue Lewis, that was another woman that I told. Uh, and these are things that just, but these people I were so close to, you know, in my everyday life. And those are the ones that I told. Well, I'm sure you had to tell certain people or they were probably asking if you're, you know, your lip was all swollen, you're showing up, you're, you're acting differently. Uh, Right. And I had to tell my uh, uh, first husband, I told him that I got hit in the mouth with a revolving door. I went in it wrong. I couldn't think of anything to tell him. Mm -hmm. The lip finally went down after about three days and the bruising I could cover up with makeup. So I just, uh, I just tried to forget, threw myself into my work. And I remember one particular instant, um, uh, my van, my nursing home van, was completely loaded up with uh, T-shirts, yard signs, buttons, everything in the world, bumper stickers. And I remember one night thinking I had to get that stuff out of my van. And there was a local business here in Van Buren that called K-Chair Company. And back in the 70s and early 80s, they were they made chairs and they would have this big bonfire going out behind their business and people from the community could bring things. It was a huge and uh, enclosed area that you could throw stuff into. I remember going out there real late. I told my husband that I had to go out to the nursing home to do something and I remember backing up that nursing home van and absolutely throwing everything out of my nursing home van into that fire. And that made me feel so good just to okay. see that, all that stuff burn. Uh, but it, it was hard. You know, people say, well, how did you get over that? You don't get over it. You find methods to try to cope with what you went through. And I think mine was throwing myself into my business, working 10, 14 hours a day, trying to do what I, and help my business because I was never going to get any help from Bill Clinton. I knew that. And so that's, that's pretty much, I became a worker, <laughs> a worker bee. <laughs> but even though I was the owner, I worked day and night. So you threw yourself in your business. Um, did you, I mean, did you start to 
at least separate yourself from the incident and start to feel a little bit better and that your life was, you know, that you were moving away from it? How, how long did that take? Oh, it took, it took, you, well, you don't ever get over it. Right. It's like somebody that's been raped violently like I was. It's like it becomes a part of your DNA. It's, it's with you and you cannot, you can't shake it. You can get away from it by doing something else to try to get your mind off of it. But mm -hmm. man, it just doesn't, it, it doesn't leave you. And thank God the people that I told were so supportive and we would get together and talk about it. And, and so many times I think, you know, I, I should have come forward, but I couldn't, I was struggling too much with it. You know, and I was so afraid of what he might do to me in my business. I was frightened of the Clintons. I'll bet. And there's one incident that I've heard you talk about before, an incident with, with Hillary Clinton when the Clintons came to visit yeah. your nursing home. Yeah. Um, so how long after, after the rape was, was this? Okay. It was about three to four weeks and when I was volunteering, now, after I came back, I told the state office and the local office that I, I could not help anymore with volunteering. But prior to the rape, I had helped set up a fundraiser with my friends. Mm -hmm. Their name is Buddy and Betty Criswell. Buddy was my dentist, and Betty and I played tennis together. And they had this beautiful home up on the mountain here. And so I had asked them, you know, can we have this fundraiser up at your house? It would be so nice. And the people that we could invite, it would just be a really neat thing. And I remembered about this fundraiser. And I called Betty a day or two before and told her I had some information I was going to bring her, but that I couldn't attend the meeting. I would be up there about 30 minutes early and bring her the information but that I had something going on at the nursing home and that I couldn't come. I also had three or four checks that had I found in my van that people had written to me. I think they were like for $25, $20 or whatever to the Clinton campaign. So I gave her those checks too, to give to the lady from the state. And so I gave them this information and then I thought, I've got to get out of here before they get here. Before I could get out, of the house, I see them coming through the back door, the back area of the kitchen. And a friend of mine, Chuck Watts, a local pharmacist, uh, had driven them to the air from the airport. And so he comes right over to me. Now, Chuck did not know what had happened to me. And he comes right over to me and he said, do you know that the topic of the conversation all the way from the airport was the Clintons asking me information about you? And I, I absolutely froze and thought, I've got to get out of here. I can't, I mean, why, you know, were they asking questions all the way from the airport and wanting to know information about me? Uh, and so I just thought I've got to get out of here. So I head to the front door but before I can get to the front door, here comes Hillary Clinton. I can see her through, uh, from the right there coming straight for me. And, she, and I think, my God, as she's walking to me, I think, she's caught me. There's nothing I can do but say hello to her. She comes to me. She's smiling. She's so friendly. And I think at the time, my God, this poor woman married to that horrible man comes to me, takes hold of my hand and says, I just want you to know 
how appreciative Bill and I are for everything that you're doing in his campaign. And I might have nodded. I might have said, thank you. I dropped her hand and I was going to leave. And then I feel somebody grabbed me from behind. And I think it's somebody going to tell me goodbye. I turn around and Hillary Clinton has this tight grip on my arm. And she doesn't, she's not smiling anymore. And she pulls me down to her and right into her face. And with this scowl, she says, do you understand everything you do? And I could have fainted. I jerked her hand away from my arm and I headed out the front door. If that's not a threat, I don't know what is. Oh, I know. And so many people say, how do you know that's what she meant? You'd have to have been there standing in my shoes at that time. Mm-hmm. Even so, just, just you, you explaining it there, I mean, just the actions of her, her grabbing you. you. You'd never met Hillary Clinton before this, right? No, no. It's the first time you've ever met her. She comes right up to you, says this nice thing first, and then grabs you. I mean, that is... Oh, I know. By the book, you want to go by the book, that, that could be considered an assault. Yeah. That could be considered yeah, aggravated and- assault or battery. And I took it as a threat. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it like, you keep quiet. Now, did he go to her and say, oops, I messed up, or, or what? You know, and why were they asking all those questions about me before they got to the meeting? That doesn't make sense. Right. It certainly doesn't make sense. Hey guys, this is Roger Paxton, and if you're fed up with the government running every single aspect of your life, but you're not listening to the Lava Flow podcast yet, then what's wrong with you? Check us out at thelavaflow.com, or just go back to sucking up to the government. The Lava Flow podcast, striking the root every single episode. This is Chris Spangle, and I am the host of We Are Libertarians, which you can find in iTunes, Google Play, or at wearelibertarians.com. We are a podcast that brings you all of the irreverence that modern politics deserves by examining current events from a libertarian perspective. So please, check us out at wearelibertarians.com. Hey, Liberty Rockers, this is Johnny Rocket from the Johnny Rocket Launchpad. Each week, I strive to bring you the best guests in talk radio. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad delivers weekly interviews of noteworthy politicians, economists, and activists. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad is bringing the party to the Libertarian Party and launching ideas in your direction. Check it out at johnnyrocketlaunchpad.com or find us on iTunes. Each show is action-packed, explicit, and a lot of fun. So join me at johnnyrocketlaunchpad.com every week for the newest episode. Keep liberty alive and rock and roll. After this event, you know, I can't imagine what it was like for you to see Bill elected governor, and then after that, um, elected president of the United States. Uh, just. Uh, I think that's something that a lot of people just just don't just just can't even I I I, I can't fathom it. I can't put myself in your shoes to to going through that. Oh, um, it was horrible! It was horrible. I even had to change my church service from the regular church service in the in the Episcopal Church. They have the prayers for the government, and they'll say we pray we pray for the president Bill Clinton, and then they go on down to the mayor. And so my husband and I 
switch to the eight o'clock service because that way they would just say the office and I wouldn't have to hear his name. I, there's so many things. I'd have to grab the remote every time he came on TV to switch it because I couldn't stand the, I just couldn't stand to look at him. Uh, I, I got, I had panic attacks. I developed severe claustrophobia and those things didn't go away for probably three or four years. How many years went by between between the time you were raped and then once when it came out during the Paula Jones suit? That- oh gosh, that's almost 20. Well, I heard about Paula Jones early in, I don't remember if it was 93 or 94 when that all that first started. And I just had my fingers crossed thinking, oh my God, I hope she brings him down. Hope she can do what I couldn't. Mm-hmm. And then of course, Jennifer Flowers came out and I, and I had all these gotcha moments, <laughs> you know, that, that, oh, surely this will do it. And, and he, they were just bulletproof. There's nothing that you could do. And then along in about 1997, it was, it had gotten all over Arkansas, you know, one place or the other about what had happened to me. And some people believed it. Some people didn't believe it. You know, I I could care less who did or didn't. It was just, I just wanted to stay out of it. And then in 1997, uh, I had some investigators show up at my front door. And that's before I had my security fence and gate. And they come up to the front door. Their name was Rick and Beverly Lambert. And they were investigators for the Paula Jones suit. Well, come to find out weeks later, days later, they had recorded my conversation with them. I had told them, and that's on the internet too, uh, that I did not want to get involved in the Paula Jones suit. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted nothing to do with it. It's too painful to remember. And just all of these things. Like I said, there's a, the transcript is on the internet. And so they went back and I thought that was the end of it. Then all of a sudden one day I get this letter in the mail that I'm going to be deposed as Jane Doe number five in the Paula Jones suit. I I couldn't believe it. I mean, all my, my worst nightmare was coming true. I was a success, successful businesswoman. I was happily married. I wanted nothing to do with this. I had seen what they'd done to Paula. I'd seen what they'd done to Jennifer Flowers and other women. I'd heard about Hillary Clinton's war room on women. I mean, I, I did not want to be involved in this. So I went to my attorney. And I never told him in the beginning what had happened. And I said, this is not true. Uh, I, I want you to get me out of this. Just to clarify, when you say you didn't tell him in the beginning, he didn't know that you'd been recorded by investigators, by private right. investigators? Right, okay. that I had said that. And we never, he just did what I wanted him to do. He knew that I was going to say that this was all a lie. And so... I go to the deposition and I tell them, no, none of this is true. And I leave. And I think that's the end of that. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm through. It it made me feel bad because as I sat there in that deposition, I could see Bill Clinton's lawyers. You know, there was two of them there, a man and a woman. And I could see them nodding their head, you know, and very, and affirming what I was sitting there uh, lying about, 
And uh, that upset me, you know, that I was doing anything that might possibly help him. But I didn't want in this. So I leave and I think, okay, that's it. I did a bad thing. But I'm out of this now and they can't bother me anymore. So I was doing fine. Then two or three months later, here comes a letter from Ken Starr. And my son finds out about it first. My son's an attorney here. And uh, he gets the letter. Well, my attorney calls him and says, she's going to be deposed by Ken Starr's people. And so he says, well, let me go tell mother about it. So he calls me, comes over, and I can remember us sitting in there in my kitchen. And he comes in. I said, what is it? What's going on? He said, Mom, you're going to be deposed by Ken Starr. I had told Kevin, my son, when he was about 19, 18, somewhere around that, uh, what had happened to me. He had known for many, many years. And he comes in, sits down in my kitchen and says, this is different, Mom. Paula Jones was a civil suit. He said, this is a federal suit. You've got to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. And I told him, I can't. I can't. I've already lied about it. And now you want me to come back and tell what really happened to me? I can't do it. But he finally persuaded me. And that's what I did. So what, what happened with the, with the Ken Starr trial? So you, you, you were deposed... Um, I was deposed. Those people were so nice. I get so angry. And they would come over to me after the deposition and tell me, you know, how, how much they appreciated me coming forward and how nice it was and, and, and all of that. And I felt, I felt relieved. It was over. It was out. I had done it. And then people say, well, Ken Starr found her uncredible, you know, that she was not credible. That's a lie. You know, those people were so, they, they knew that I was telling the truth. Mm-hmm. I just could not, they could not find out any obstruction of justice or threats, you know, uh, toward me other than Hillary. And that's another thing too. You know, whenever I did my Dateline interview, they would not allow me to talk about being threatened by Hillary at all. Why is, oh, because they, they didn't want that out there. They didn't, no, yeah, of course. No. So was that included in your deposition, the being threatened by Hillary? It was? Yeah, yeah, that was, all of that. And I wish those records would be unsealed. You know, I wish, you know, am I going to be dead and gone before my records with the independent counsel? Is that going to come out? You know, I, I wish so much that my uh, deposition with, with mm-hmm. them would come out. I remember reading Dave Shipper's book, Sellout. Have you ever read that book? I, I have not, no. Oh, my gosh. It's about the ridiculousness of the impeachment uh, hearing and how it was. There was even, you know, e- even Henry Hyde, in when they were having their meetings, their, their private meetings, would say, just read her account of what Bill Clinton did to her. Mm-hmm. And I remember in, in uh, Dave Shipper's book, he said at one time, Ted Stevens, even though he was a Republican, uh, Senator Ted Stevens from Alaska said, I don't care if he raped her, stood up and shot her dead. You're not going to get the votes. Is that not the coldest 
They knew that they could not get the votes to impeach him. And none, the, the Democrats would not look at my record at all. Uh, I, you know. It's, it's absolutely, and this is what is so disgusting about politics, about the two-party system we have, right? Is yes. that people, people will allow that. And it's, it's not just the people involved in the party. It's not just the politicians. It, uh, it seeps yeah. out into the populace, and people allow that to cloud their judgment so as to, you know, they only believe what confirms what they believe in, confirmation uh, bias. Right. We're only going to take the bits and pieces that, that, you know, feed the story that they want to believe. That they want to believe that Bill Clinton, you know, maybe he cheated on his wife, but he never raped anybody or I never know. violently attacked That just goes all over me. Every time somebody will reply, you weren't raped, quit lying. You know, it's just uh, awful. So what's what's been the media reaction to your book, to um, your your uh, many uh, media appearances that, that you've been doing recently? What, what's been the feedback you've gotten from the media? Well, of course, uh, there was that time in uh, uh, 2017 when Chris Hayes from MSNBC said, you know, Bill Clinton needs to be looked into. And then Hildebrand, uh, Jildebrand, whatever her name is, you know, sort of isolated herself from the Clintons. And then that wonderful op-ed in the New York Times by Michelle Goldberg that was titled, I Believe Juanita, mm-hmm. and others. There was a uh, uh, Kirsten Flanagan that came out. With, and there's been so many that have come out and said, yeah, we believe her. You, you even had a, a tweet back and forth. I'm not sure when it happened with uh, with Chelsea Handler, right, oh, where she – yeah. where she had said something to the effect, talking about Donald Trump. Can you believe the people, the, the women out there who he's assaulted, who have to watch him as president, and, and you responded? Yeah, um, that was when Moore was running in Alabama, and she okay. was talking about him. And I said, and I tweeted back to her, uh, yeah, and it's funny that you don't remember about Bill Clinton. I was raped and yeah, 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 and all of that. And a few days later, I guess someone had told her about my answer to her tweet. And she said, I'm, and she actually apologized on Twitter. And then she was on someone's late night show and uh, also made a comment that she believed me. So that was shocking. Well, if, if she, if she does truly believe you, which I don't, I don't know if I believe that she does because yeah, if, you don't know. <laughs> yeah, because if, if she did though, I mean, you would think that she would be disgusted, so disgusted with the Clintons, with Hillary Clinton, yeah. Hillary Clinton for being the enabler and for, for threatening you that she would, you know, really denounce the Clintons, yeah. denounce Bill's presidency and denounce Hillary Clinton. And I haven't seen Chelsea Handler do that. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, you know, so many people said, well, why did she come out in the 2016 presidential race about Hillary when she didn't ever come out before? I, I wrote a letter to the editor. It was an open letter to Hillary Clinton back when she was running for senator. And it was posted online several places mm-hmm. uh, that referred to this incident and alerting the people of New York you know, don't elect this woman. She's dishonest. She's threatened the victims of her husband. Uh, anyway, uh, that I didn't just come out in 2016. And like I said, wouldn't have come out had she not tweeted what she did. I would never have come out. So, that, so that went all over me. 
What, what, what happened there? Um, you, how did you come across the tweet? Because I've, I've heard the story before and you weren't exactly familiar oh, with Twitter at the time. No, I wasn't. Uh, well, I saw it on uh, TV. Uh, they would have this little promo thing going on that tells her, you know, that says all victims of sexual abuse should come forward and be believed and all of this. And I, I, and, and of course the outrage went viral from her even saying that mm-hmm. her of all people, how could that come out of her mouth? And I just fumed about it for weeks. And then I thought, after the Christmas holidays was over, I thought, you know, I've got to answer this. So I called my grandson and he sort of walked me through how to, how to tweet and use Twitter. So I, and he was only 12, <laughs> you know, they say, ask your kids if you want to yeah. know about uh, social media. Uh, and so the next morning I remember I got up and, and I had this thing done this statement, and I thought, well, that looks good. I'm not saying anything that I hadn't said for 20 years, and I had it just right where it didn't come up in the red, and I thought, I guess now I punch tweet. So I punched tweet, and all hell broke loose. And, and John, I hadn't said anything mm-hmm. that, I had, that, I, that, that I hadn't said for the last 40 years, 38 years. Right. Um, my phone started ringing off the wall and about the third call was my son from his lawyer's office. (laughs) And he said, mom, what did you do? And I said, I don't know. And because his office, they were calling his office. They knew that, I guess they found out that my son was an attorney and I had probably a hundred messages from reporters wanting to know. And one of them was Andrea Mitchell. Oh, wow. She called me later that day and said, we'd like for you to go to a Fort Smith studio to do uh, a quick interview for our uh, night show, our night news. And I said, I can't do that. I knew who Andrea Mitchell was. I, I, I didn't want to be interviewed with her. She said, well, then just let me interview you on the phone. So she started asking me about how could I say that I had been threatened by Hillary Clinton and uh, to be silent? And I told her about the situation and what Hillary did to me. And she said, oh, how could you take that as that? You know, just something to that effect. How could you? And I said, listen, Andrea, you'd had to have been standing in my shoes at the time and seeing the look on her face mm-hmm. and the threatening voice she used when she threatened me. You'd had to have been there. And so she finished the interview and about five minutes back uh, later, she called back and said, well, this isn't any new news. We're not going to use it. And I just hung up. (laughs) Unbelievable. (laughs) Uh, Well, it wasn't wasn't new news, but with Twitter, it's instant and worldwide. Mm -hmm. So many people, the millennials and other people had never heard my name. Right. And I think that tweet today is over a hundred thousand, you know, in, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a powerful form of communication. And, you know, a lot of people for better or worse, criticize Trump for using it the way he does. But I mean, I think it's a, it's an effective tool for him. I think Uh, he gets the messages he wants across sometimes. And I think when there is outrage about what he says, it's because he wants there to be outrage. So I think he's using it the way that, 
that he's intending to. Yeah, and when you can imagine me sitting here in Arkansas in my home alone and uh, uh, being able to reach out. I mean, a 75-year-old woman on Twitter. It's ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) So I I want to ask you one more question. I thank you for being so gracious with your time. Just one more question. Um, I've heard you talk about this before. How do you respond to people when they say, all women should be believed? Oh, I do believe that. I I believe that women have the right to be heard. And I believe they have the right to tell their story, whatever it is. But they keep saying why that I should have a view on this. I have no views on other women and what they went through. I only know what happened to me in 1978 in that hotel room when Bill Clinton raped me. I don't know these women. I hope if they're telling the truth that they get their day in court. It's much like the women of Bill Cosby. Mm-hmm. You know, I was so happy. I can only wish that uh, that uh, that the Clinton victims had an Andrea Costand. <laughs> Something that had happened recently. That's the only way we would bring him down with our allegations of sexual misconduct. Right. It's it's a hard it's a hard thing to, to really solve. And I, I think it's important to point out that you said should be heard. And I think anyone who believes in justice would have to agree with you there that, of course, every yeah. woman, every man, anyone who's, who's suffered, who's been attacked, been harmed, violently injured in any way, deserves yeah. the right to be, to be heard and for due process to take place. But how do we have due process when the people at the top are the ones who are controlling the system and have that power. No. And, no. you know, we saw that's what happened in Hollywood with Harvey, Harvey Weinstein, yeah. but what just happened with the attorney general in, in New York. Oh, uh, it's, oh it's, my goodness. When that, when those women said, you know, they just absolutely, it was like deja vu to me that they were saying, you know, I couldn't go up against this man. He's the attorney general. He's the, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's exactly how I felt 40 years ago. But one interesting thing I just remembered after I made that tweet in 2016, a week later, Hillary Clinton removed, you should be believed from her website. Wow. Yeah. That, uh, I mean, that, is is that is that admitting? Uh, that's admitting something. I, I think. I mean, that's. Oh yeah. I, I I don't know. I mean, I think that just speaks for itself. Yeah. Tr- truly, um, and, and I'm. I mean, it's just a really tragic story, Juanita. And you know, I know it's even all these years later. I'm sure it doesn't get any easier to to talk about this. No. Um, I want to thank you for for coming on my show and sharing this with my audience because because like you said, a lot of the people who. You know, listen to this show. A lot of people on Twitter, they're younger people. They haven't heard this story. They've heard about Bill, Bill Clinton, maybe from their, their parents who talk about him glowingly, who just sort of ignored this happening um, yeah. in the past. So thank you so much for coming on the show. John, thank you so much for asking. Have a great day. You too. Happy birthday. <laughs> thank you. Wow. What a show. What a tragedy that... Juanita Broderick um, is is sharing and what she's been sharing, talking about for for years. And, you know, like I said during the intro or during my beginning of my discussion with Juanita today, I, I I feel guilty about this because 
I really, I for whatever reason, I don't know if I just ignored these these rape accusations. I, I certainly didn't look into them diligently enough. Um, and I viewed Bill Clinton as really a scumbag, but I didn't view him as a monster. And I think Juanita Broderick's story is pretty damn convincing. And if you believe Juanita Broderick, then you got to believe that Bill Clinton is a monster. And you got to believe also that Hillary Clinton is also a monster for covering up his behavior and threatening uh, the women who Bill Clinton preyed upon. So just a terrifying situation, really. And it's unfortunate to have to say this, but whenever you take on the Clintons, which I've done today by bringing Juanita on my show, I have to let everyone know that my health right now is phenomenal. I am not depressed. I am probably at the greatest point I've ever been at in my life. I feel fantastic. I have a wonderful family, wonderful friends, and I'm not thinking about suiciding myself. So please keep that in mind, people. And I'll just leave it at that. You know, I'll just encourage everyone to listen for yourself and judge for yourself. And also, you know, sometimes when you listen to a podcast, you think, you know, it might be nice to be able to to see the facial expressions of the guest. Well, if you want to see that, I'm going to make the video for this interview available in the Pride. That's right. I haven't done that before, but we're experimenting with video. You know, I'm not really ready to start publishing these videos to the world publicly. That's why we're sticking with just the podcast feed that way publicly. But I'm going to publish this video for our Pride members. And this is a good time to say we have just transitioned our Lions of Liberty Pride, which is our support group if you're a new listener. It's our subscriber base. It's how we fund buying new equipment, um, fund trips to libertarian conventions to to cover uh, different things, to interview people, to have shows on site. It's how we cover our travel to that. It's how we advertise on other podcasts to grow our base, to reach more people, to make the show bigger, badder, and better. If you want to join, we have transitioned just recently. We're in the beginning stages of moving our Pride members from Podbean to Patreon. Patreon. I guess it's Patreon. Is that the right way? I guess that's right. And you can join Lions of Liberty Pride. You can find that Patreon link by going to lionsofliberty.com support. Or if you're already on Patreon, just search for Lions of Liberty will pop up. You can join. We have levels from five all the way up until 25. And at that first level of five, you get access to all of our bonus content. We do have recurring shows that we publish in our bonus feed. We have a, a show called Conspiracy Corner, where just recently we happened to talk about the Clintons. So you can check that out too. Um, we have a show called Degenerate Gamblers, where we talk about all kinds of different things. Gambling, talk about stories from college, fun stuff. It's it's a really fun show. We enjoy doing it, and we hope you guys enjoy listening to it. And we also do uh, you know bonus episodes with, with our guests, bonus questions, I should say, different things like that. Brian McWilliams, host of Electric Liberty Land, will do from time to time a rant. Sometimes he'll do his uh, now, I guess, retired show or a semi-retired show, uh, Rand Pluses and Minuses, talking about Rand Paul's decisions and how they relate to liberty. So you get all that stuff just for $5, all the shows 
If you want to give us more, which would be fantastic, you start to get merchandise with your subscription at $10. At $15, we kick in our Monday through Friday news links. We have a big dump of uh, news links we send you on politics, on criminal justice, on culture, on foreign policy, on uh, just mainstream media news, on cryptocurrency news, all kinds of stuff. It's great. People absolutely love it. And then, of course, our $25 level, you get everything in the levels in the tiers below. Plus, you get a monthly conference call with us where you can talk about whatever the heck you want to. And that's it. That's all you got to do. Help us to get to our next goal, which if you combine our Patreon and our Podbean, hopefully everyone on the Podbean goes over to Patreon or even you know upgrade and we get higher. But right now with the combination between the two, we're at like 1,100, something like that. We need to get to 1,500 because we have some big plans for the Libertarian National Convention. We are in talks with some people there to live stream some special events that are not going to be official Libertarian Party events, but some uh, events on the outside. And we want to live stream that stuff. We want to kind of work the room, do some on-the-spot interviews there as well. Mark Claire and I are going, help us to get there, number one, get our hotel room and our flight and all that stuff, but also help us to bring you some freaking fantastic content because it's going to be fantastic. I can promise you that. And that's it. That's all I got, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, subscribe to the Lions of Liberty podcast. If you haven't, iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Google Play, TuneIn, every podcasting app out there. Thank you so much for listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.